Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, depending upon where you are in the world. Uh, Femi Coyote is my guest today, and um, uh, my friend, uh, This we're going to be talking about his, his new book called Gaslight, and some of you may have seen uh, the program we did um, when Lightkeepers came out, remarkable series of books you have going there. Um, so Femi, welcome. It's great to see you again, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hello. Hello. Yeah, no, <laughs> Happy I can New Year, Patrick. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I think there there might be a slight delay. Okay, good. Yeah. But you can hear me okay. Yeah. I can hear you okay. Although my inter my internet is telling me it's a bit unstable, but it's fine. I think we can push through. <laughs> the last time we spoke, I was in the US, so we didn't have this much technical issues. Oh, that's right. That's right. Are you in uh, Namibia right now? Yes, yes. I'm in Namibia, Namibia. in Southern Africa. So it's right. sort of like at the edge next to the, to the Atlantic Ocean, next to South Africa. Above is Angola and Zambia and Zimbabwe. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, we're going to get into this uh, this terrific book. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, maybe you can tell our viewers, our audience about your own background. You know, you have a very interesting background story. You know, you were trained as a clinical psychologist. Uh, you've done uh, a number of TV shows. Uh, can you talk about your life before you started writing novels? Uh, I don't know. It's not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did, I did. There's a lot of talk about this whole clinical psychology thing that I always find very interesting. And I've always told my publicists on both sides of the Atlantic to say, maybe we should remove it from my profile. <laughs> Because I never practiced. Um, I actually went into clinical psychology because I was a lot more curious about myself than I was about other people, mm. you know, um, about how my brain worked. Uh, it was almost like self-therapy to uh, a certain extent. And um, I remember my dad kept on saying, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? You're either a doctor or you're not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and I truly enjoyed it, I must say, because my first degree was in animal science. And then I did my master's in clinical psychology. Um, and I never practiced. It was a two-year program. And by the time I finished and did my internship, I already got a job in advertising and I was already enjoying it. And it's very interesting. I did get the job in advertising because of my background in clinical psychology, because they were looking for somebody that had a science background to work in, you know, the medical products field. And I, I remember my first project was actually Zoloft, which was actually an antidepressant, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So it, so it all just kept just seemed to all come together. And so this idea that, you know, one studies clinical psychology and then you practice this somehow I did practice it but not in the traditional way you know I was writing a lot of um, 
a lot of product description, a lot of um, case notes for um, for Pfizer then, uh, the big bad pharma <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it, I must say. It was one of those few moments when it seems as if all my interests came together inside one, you know, my love for writing, you know, what I studied, my science background, you know, everything just sort of came together, you know, at that particular point in time. And I've been in advertising now for, I would say, what? 23 years now, um, working in different areas in terms of creative, working in the, as a copywriter, working as a creative director, working as a, a strategist. Uh, and I'm still doing it because, you know, contrary to popular opinion until you become James Patterson or J.K. Rowling, <laughs> you know, writing doesn't pay that much. <laughs> doesn't pay that much. You. Yeah, yeah. Until you get a good uh, movie deal or something like that, right? You know, you know, the movie deal is not. You know, I've, 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 again, I've been writing screenplays. You know, um, I've been writing screenplays um, for a very long time. Um, like I said, I've, I've written in different genres and different platforms. Um, so uh, the movie deal, I don't know whether it's going to make such a big deal, big difference. Uh, I think to a very large extent, the writing is becoming fulfilling in itself. It's becoming its own. Um, you get to that age where you realize that you're not going to be Jeff Bezos and just make peace with it. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you make peace with it, you know, especially at our age, Patrick. You know, we just realized, okay, you know, it's fine now. We just want to enjoy what we do. And that's a blessing in its in its Absolutely. own on its own. Um, and so that's where I am. I'm, I'm enjoying what I do. I'm enjoying the stories that I'm telling, and I hope that I'm becoming a better human being as a result of that of telling those stories. Uh, that's that's the best I can hope for at this point. The kids are fine. The family is fine. You know, you know, we have a roof over our heads, and we can feed ourselves, and we still have our Christmas tree up. So that means that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, everything is um, yeah. That's is, the best you can hope for. It is a, it is a privilege to be able to do something that you enjoy doing, you know, and something that is uh, fulfilling. You know, a lot of people absolutely. Don't, a lot of people are stuck, you know, working jobs that they despise, you know, just to to put food on the table, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a blessing and and one that one should not take for granted. Um, but also, I'm also very privileged because all of these experiences, like I said, you know, you know, you're more than the sum of your parts. And I'm finally in that space where I really feel that, you know, in age, in experience, in training, in background, in everything, in, in even where I come from as a Nigerian, everything just seems to be coming together and it's fashioning my, my future forward. Journey, and so I, I feel, I feel quite, um, yeah, quite complete. <laughs> Maybe that's the word. I won't say grown, but complete. I feel like I'm ready for the next twenty five years. Knock on wood. <laughs> wow, how many of us can say that? That's great. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, you know, maybe maybe as a as an introduction um, to our discussion about your books, I thought maybe we'd go back and and have you talk a little bit about the first book, 
for the people who aren't familiar with the light keepers um you know this this second book opens one year after um the events in the first book and that case of the is it the okriki three case the okriki three <laughs> yeah and that that was yeah I, talk a little bit about that oh light seekers was you know, like one of those surprise things, you know, I went to school to study uh, creative writing. I wanted to, I really wanted to write a novel and I didn't feel I had the discipline to be on my own and write a novel. And I felt I needed to go to school and somehow I finished the novel, which was my thesis and it won the Little Brown Award and I got a publishing deal out of it. And um so that was a very interesting experience, a lot of exciting milestones in that space. But Lightseekers is really based on a, on, on a true event, on an event that actually happened in Nigeria where um, four undergraduates were lynched by a mob and they were murdered by a mob. And you can still see it on, on, on the internet. You can see it on YouTube where they were mobbed because they were, they were suspected of being armed robbers. And these were undergraduates. And it really sparked a lot of outreach in people all over the world when they heard about it. But for me, it sparked a lot of questions. You know, how can we be like this? How how do people do this to people? You know, uh, we're constantly in that space where we're we're always always talking about how bad governments are, how bad institutions are, but we really talk about how bad people are to people. <laughs> how bad people are to people um so um so light seekers was really me trying to find answers to some of these questions about you know um myself about being a nigerian about nigeria itself about um so many issues at that particular point in time and i think i was naive enough to think that I I could do it and I did it <laughs> yeah so um I used my curiosity and my questions to drive the story you know um, in creating this character called Philip Taiwo who went to investigate the why you know so we knew who did it who killed these boys he's out there on social media but right. then he now had to find out why, why did they do it, you know? And I realized that I, I fell in love with this idea of context is everything, you know, mm -hmm. this idea of what you can say, what you call the sociological crime story, the sociological, you know, thriller, so to speak. And I, I became enamored with this idea of, you know, telling stories about how we as Africans, specifically Nigerians, um, I live in Namibia now, so I hope you tell a story about Namibia one of these days. Um, how we got to where we are, and and to give a narrative that is very different from what you see on CNN, you know, or what you see on on Fox News, or what you guys would see on your local um, American media, because all you see about Africa is all the strife and conflict and all that, but we never quite say, you know, how did we get here? How how did all of this, how did this pieces of this puzzle work together you know uh people don't like war you know nobody wakes up in the morning and say today i'm gonna bomb you know <laughs> you know nobody right. does that you know something 
something led us to it. You know, something led, especially when we're talking about groupthink, which is something that fascinates me a lot from a sociological point of view. You know, when you talk about groupthink, you know, how by telepathy do people communicate intentions with each other, especially when it's a crime? You know, how do they communicate this intention to each other? Was it lying subliminally inside people and you just pick up the phone or you just bring out a gramophone and say, guys, come out now, you know, let's just go stomp the White House, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. <laughs> or, or yeah, or do we plan it? Or is it, you know, are we actually victims of some kind of a petir, you know, that actually knows exactly, you know, what you would do if they press the right buttons? And so for me, Lightseekers is exactly, you know, really asking those questions and really exploring those questions. I can't say I gave the answers, but at least within this, the specificity of that story, I was able to um, create some kind of, thinking man's answer, you know, in terms of what could have been the reason why these people would do this to these three boys. And it's, it's as you say, it's not a, uh, you know, it, these, it tends to be overly simplified by the press, you know, the causes and conditions. And, you know, as somebody just said, people tend to watch the news for sensationalism. You know, um, and yeah, it's uh, and also in, in your books, you your character has a unique perspective because he's lived in the United States and uh, in this new book, especially family is a big part of the story, you know, because these his children were raised basically in the United States and now here they are in Nigeria um, and um you know, and they, they, you know, they're used to a different, a different lifestyle, uh, you know, a Western lifestyle. And that, that, that uh, conflict is front and center in the book, or at least, you know, and there's so many things going on with this new book. Um, I'll ask you to get into some of those things. It, it seems to me that Taiwo and, and Chica, I love the character of, of Chica, uh they're both it it really <laughs> it, it really is a partnership in a lot of ways you know they they function so well together in these cases um first of all can you tell people about taiwo he's not a detective he's not a cop he is a forensic psychologist or an investigative mm -hmm. psychologist um and so he's almost like the cerebral you know, it, it's tempting to say he's the Sherlock Holmes kind of character. It's not quite the same, but <laughs> but Chica, Chica, uh, they, as I say, they work together really well. Uh, yeah, um, Philip is an investigative psychologist, which is an evolving space in psychology that sort of came into prominence, sort of in the sort of in the late 70s, early 80s, but really took some prominence in the 90s, um, uh, which is really a very, very interesting space where it actually tries to, I call them the auditors of investigation. You know, they, 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 they actually, and, and I get this question a lot, you know, is there really a field called investigative psychology? 
uh, and it, is it how is it different from forensic psychology? Um, it's it's it, investigative psychologists try to ensure that the process of investigating a crime um, is done to what you can say best practice, so that when we actually go to court to prosecute this case, we know not only why it happened, we know what happened, we know the motivations, and we know that the police, in terms of the procedural, went through the right process. So, for instance, they did not get a confession under duress, for instance. You know, what's the circumstances under which, you know, the crime was committed, and so many other things. So, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very broad, almost academic field, you know, in, in a sense, compared to forensic, which is very much um, forensic, you know, you know, what happened, how did the gun go through the body, where did they get the gun, crime scene investigation and all of those kind of things. So it's a very interesting field, um, but it, it does exist. So Philip is an investigative psychologist. Um, and uh, Chika, he met when he was doing his first case in Nigeria, and Chika was a, was an, was a mercenary. Um, and he he now owns a security company, uh, a cyber security company, where he uh, he uses his his bronze uh, to help um, Philip solve some of his cases or to look into some of his cases. Uh, Chika is very interesting. There are three characters that I designed in the books in, or in the stories, and it's it's Chika who I call the bronze, the muzzle. Um, it's Philip's wife, who I call the heart, <laughs> the heart of the story, the voice of reason, so to speak, and Philip himself, who is the academic. Um, I don't know whether he's a Sherlock Holmes. There have been so many iterations of Sherlock Holmes nowadays that I don't know who Sherlock Holmes is anymore. Yeah. I don't know whether he's a superpower, yeah. ultra intelligent. It's I don't know whether a, he's a flawed hero. Not a good. I, I, not I, a I really don't know anymore. Yeah, it's probably not the best comparison. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I think it's closer to Watson, though. You know, I think yeah. it's closer to Watson. You know, he puts in the work. Um, He's, he's all heart, um, and he's not, he's not, he doesn't have what you can call the typical flaws. He's not an alcoholic, he's a family man, you know, and he has all the normal issues, um, what you can say a family man would have, um, that is relatable. And that's very, very deliberate for me. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to create a character that had so many flaws, this unlikable flaws to make them more fascinating. It almost seems like spectacle for spectacle's sake, you know, because there are tons of, of police officers or investigators, for instance, in the United States that are just normal people doing their job, you know, right. kind of thing, just doing their job and, and doing it very well too, you know, and same thing over here, you know, on the continent, uh, you know, there are quite a number of people that are just doing their job. They're teachers, they're nurses, they are um, artists, musicians, or whatever, that are just, for lack of a better word, just regular. I don't want to use the word normal. They're regular, <laughs> you know, they're regular people. 
with sometimes irregular issues that they have to deal with once in a mm. while in their lives, you know, and I really wanted to create a character that people could relate to on that very primal level, you know, um, and that's why his family features a lot in his story, in, in these stories, in, in Lightseekers, he was suspecting his wife of having an affair, um, we don't know whether she was or she wasn't, so I'm not going to give that away because the book is still on this on the shelves. So please get it. <laughs> but in this particular one, he's having problems with his teenage daughter, um, and he needs to needs to step up to the plate as a father while still going on with this very very important investigation, which, by the way, he's being paid very good money for, you know, and he needs it not because he's broke or whatever, but he needs that validation that you know in nigeria he's sort of like a fish out of water he's trying to find his place and he gets this job that is actually going to you know add to his resume because he's preparing to go back to the u.s after his wife's sabbatical um so th there's a lot that's happening there deliberately um to make sh to actually tell the reader that life is messy and your life might be messy now but you know there's someone that gets you in a way kind of thing. Right. right, absolutely. Now, I wanted to ask you about well, let's talk a little bit about the about the case in this book. Um, there's a, a a bishop, kind of a charismatic sort of uh, preacher figure um, who will be very familiar to American, you know, readers. You know, because we have we have these whole mega church phenomenon here in the United States, of course, they're everywhere. Um, and he has been arrested uh, in suspicion of his much younger and not particularly well liked by the congregation wife. And she's I think he's he's our age. He's in his early 50s and she's in her mid 20s and is kind of a contentious figure. Uh, tell us a little bit about where this particular story came from. Was it also based upon uh, a, a real case? No, not really, to be honest, but I think it's based on a series of anecdotes um, that I, I, as a practicing Christian, um, I've experienced in organized religion mm. but it became a bit more it became a very pertinent story and i pitched this story along with light seekers by the way you know oh, with really? my publishers uh yeah and you know i pitched about three or four stories and that's they said that's the one after light seekers that's the one <laughs> you know and and they never changed anything they never suggested a new title they never suggested you know new characters or whatever it was just like you know, this is this is a story whose time has come kind of thing, you know, uh, and, and I felt it and the support that I got for it because it really became more pertinent after during the Trump era to mm. the extent. And I'm not speaking simply because, you know, the poison pen is American, but, but I think the, for those who read the book you know, or who are going to read the book, they can see the parallel in Philip's experience with organized religion in the U.S. Mm. and you know, organized religion in, in Nigeria, that's very deliberate. Uh, right. But it was the extent to which the evangelical organized religion groups aligned with 
some very questionable political decisions. Yes. You know, um, and I found it totally unbiblical, for, uh, for, for lack of another word. It was very unbiblical, you know. Uh, we had lots of pictures with evangelical pastors laying hands on on Trump, for instance. Um, and to be fair, I think even in American politics, we've had you know Bill Graham in those days. You know, we've had quite a number of religious leaders, you know, aligning with with um, political leaders. But it has never been so. So brazen in a sense, you know, especially when we're talking about ideological issues in terms of the LGBTQ uh, group, in terms of Israel and Palestine, in right. terms of um, so many fundamental issues, Roe versus Wade, for instance, you know, um, that you like, is this, the, is this, is this the right time for the church to be so political? I mean, we always knew you were political, but is this the right time kind of thing? So it made me very, very curious to know about, to, to sort of look into the dynamics of what's happening in there. So when you ask whether it's a real story or it's based on a real uh, event, not really. Hmm. Sadly, what is happening in the real world is actually a lot worse than what I you know, have presented. It's a lot worse, and, and that's very sad. You know, with, with Lightstickers, it was inspired by true stories, um, by a true story. But in this case, in, in the case of uh, Gaslight, it's inspired by a series of true stories, you know, that's been sort of like synthesized into this one big issue. Um, but for me, I think it's, it's very sad that you know, I, I think it was David Baldashi that said this in one of his master classes that I really enjoyed. And he was talking about going to an FBI agent and asking an FBI agent, can this happen? And then the FBI agent answered and said, trust me, if you can think it, it has already happened and it's much worse. Right. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, if you as a fiction writer can think it, trust me, it has already happened. We've already thought about it. And that's exactly the same situation with Gaslight. You know, the extent to which that it has already happened and it is happening, you know. Um, that's So that's one. The second thing that I think is very important why the title Gaslight is there was also the idea that every single time when we talk about Gaslight, at least in most cases, don't let me generalize too much. In most times when we talk about gaslighting. We talk about it in personal relationships, you know, in narcissists, in a domestic situation and all that. And I think that we've really used that term when we're talking about group think, when we're talking about narcissism, when we're talking about apartheid, for instance, when we're talking about, you know, um, when we're talking about this whole idea of how do you manipulate a large group of people right. to believe a lie? Because that's exactly what gaslight is, to believe a lie, you know. Um, and for me, that's what's what really fascinated me about the, the mega churches, you know, and all that. Do, you know, how do you convince thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to believe a fundamental lie, especially when there is proof that it's a lie? 
Because all you have to do is just go into the Bible, you know, and, and check what, you know, Jesus said about any number of issue that you want to talk about. You know, if you want to talk about, you know, I mean, we hear a lot. And no, there was no, um, there was no issue with Roe versus Wade, you know, in the, in the, in the Bible, you know, but yeah, there was no issue, but you know, it, he did say he that has no sin cast the first stone. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. did, he did say that. You know what I mean? You know, so it's somehow it seems quite you know convenient. It's convenient that we sort of like pick and we cherry pick the parts of you know holy books. You know, and it happens everywhere. You know, in in the Quran we have it. That's why we have you know um, ISIS, for instance. You know, fundamentalist groups. You know cherry picking these issues um and that's what i was very fascinated about that the proof is there all you have to do is pick up that so-called holy book open it and freaking read it <laughs> you know <laughs> just read it <laughs> you know in, in your language because it's most likely to already translated into any given language you can call you right, right now you know and um so I, I, I it was very fascinating for me and I think that is one of the sincerest thing about the book that I I was genuinely curious about how somebody like Bishop is able to convince a large group of people about a concept or an idea, you know, supported by who. And just one last point where that's concerned is that I found out that there is no gaslighting situation that is not enabled by either the society or the systems, the institutions, or the individual themselves. There's no, there's no manipulation that exists in isolation. We are sometimes willing victims. You know, we actually put ourselves in that situation, you know, right. and I think that, yeah, that's really something that I wanted to um, explore. And the last thing I think that was very interesting for me that I felt I wanted to do, maybe the psychologist, the cheeky psychologist part of me was like, I wanted the reader to feel gaslit. Yes. Yes. You, you <laughs> definitely get that sense. Um, we, before we, before we started talking, there are an, any number of spoilers that we can't really get into. But, no, we don't want to. You can but, hear me trying to work around it. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a of a James Elroy uh, novel in the sense that just when you think you've peeled off the, the 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 last layer of corruption, there's another layer to be peeled. You know, uh, and that's certainly the case in this book. Uh, we won't tell you any more about that, but. Uh, I love it. And thank you so much. You called James Elroy. I love James Elroy. I, do um, <laughs> I really do. Um, but yeah, and, and I think it's 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 easier when you start talking about context, you know, when you start using psychology, sociology, and all of those things, and you're not just plot driven, but you're actually character driven. It becomes easier as characters reveal themselves through action. It becomes much more easier for you as the writer. And you actually give the character some kind of free reign, you know, to, I know a lot of writers don't like to talk about that, you know, this idea of giving the characters free reign. 
I think you have a lot of control as a writer, as a storyteller, uh, from a plot point of view, but to really be authentic in terms of how you deal with the characters, you need to let them operate with free reign around the rules that you have created in the plot. You know, um, somebody said something to me that I thought was really, really, very, very fascinating. I never thought about it that way. That gaslight is about the weaponization of corruption. Huh. And I, I thought it was that. You just blew me away because that's exactly what it is. It's like, it's how do you, that, that, when, 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 when you know a society so well, and you know how they would operate and you know the systems and you know the institutions and how they interact with each other and you're able to turn it on its head and say how am i going to make it work for me how am i going to how am i going to use it for my agenda right and i realized that actually we all do it we all do it you know on a daily basis we actually do it as soon as that's that's what we call home you know, when you understand a space so well that you can manipulate it to suit your agenda, that's home. <laughs> that's your comfort zone. Yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> anyway, right. but it's just something I wanted to point out. No, that's very true. Um, tell us, a, well, tell us a little bit more about about the uh, the young wife. You know, she's twenty five years old, as I was starting to say. Um, and is her, is her name Sade? Is that correct? Sade, Sade, Sh yes. Sade, like the like the singer, right? Yes, yeah. deliberately chosen so. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us about yeah. tell us about her. I I think I I she's my favorite character in the book. Really? She's my favorite character. I really, really, really love her. Um, I really wanted to create a character that was a victim that had agency. I wanted a victim that had power, you know? And I remember while I was writing it, every time I tried to describe this character to my, my beta readers, to my editor, it, I never could find the right word. But then in the middle, I think I had just finished it and I needed to do some editing, just some refining it to the character so that it comes out sharper. I watched this movie called Promising Young Woman by um, Emerald Pennell. And it was starring one of my favorite actresses, Carrie Mulligan. Mm. And I watched it and I was like, that's it, that, that's her. <laughs> no, that's her. You know, she feels deeply. Um, she and she is an example of people or people that go into organized religious spaces or cults or institutions with a lot of naivety, a lot of um, hope. And what I wanted to do was really to create a character that, that mirrors the, the, the damage that can be done if we do not, if we do not honor the naivety of people that come into these spaces and their honesty and their and their and their and their zeal, you know, 
Um, so Shade was 25 when she met the bishop and she married the bishop. And so by the time the story starts, she was actually 30. Um, so she's been married oh, for about okay. five years. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you remember the, 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 there's a, it's not a spoiler, guys, but there was a particular scene where a lady said, um, I'm the one organizing her birthday party because she's coming into our own because the, um, our Lord, our Lord came into his um, mission when he was in his thirties kind of thing. So, yes. yeah. So, um, so yes, she came at a very, she came into that space at a very impressionable age, which is very reminiscent of how a lot of people come into those spaces, very impressionable, just finished school, met this bishop and fell in love to be quite fair and we, we fell in love with the space and um she is i just think i wish i was a bit more like her a bit ruthless i think there was there was a there was a book written by martin amis i can't remember it about a woman that that um she was a professor in the university she had everything going for her she was as beautiful as marilyn monroe or whatever and um she was she died and nobody could say whether it was suicide and and or whether she was murdered and the police officer just got obsessed with this woman that had this perfect life and could not understand what could have happened and what could have gone wrong and those are some of the characters that sort of like shaped my design of Shadi. you know just this idea that she is someone that that came in as one person and came out as another person. And there is no middle ground, you know, it's, it's extremist. She's, she's an extremist in either, in every situation, you know, and you don't have to agree with her choices. That again, right. I find fascinating. You don't have to agree with her choices. You don't have to agree with her, uh, her actions, but she certainly has reasons. You know, I, I I think one of the things that is not a spoiler again. One of the things that I really really liked was was sort of ripped from um, from um, a Dolly Parton uh, speech once in a concert, and was talking about when she did her hair, put and pierced her ears, and then her mother said, "Oh Lord, what did what have you done?" And then she said, "No, no, 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 no." Give credit where credit is due. I did it all by myself, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, you know, and Shade is sort of like that. You know, you know, she took agency and she took she took pride in her decisions because she has thought it through. And I wish I could be more like that as a person. And there are, you know, I wanted to ask you about the point of view. It's mainly told from uh, Philip's point of view, but there are these these little bits where we actually hear her voice. Was that something that you had from the very beginning or did that come later? Absolutely from the very beginning. I needed to hear her, you know, I needed to hear her voice. In fact, the biggest challenge I had, which my editors helped me with, thank God for them, was not to give, Philip had to find it out before you give more information. <laughs> Philip yes. constantly had to find it out or else the, the reader would be one step ahead of your hero, which right. apparently is a no-no. is a no, no. I don't know why. <laughs> but, you know, um, but really to be quite fair, I, I get it a lot because sometimes I placed those 
those interludes, I call them interludes, you know, her point of view, you know, a bit too early or a bit too late, you know, but they were always part of the design of the story that we wanted to hear her voice, we wanted to hear how she's thinking, um, why she came to this decision, uh, and what, what was her lived experience in the church and with the bishop, um, and why is she doing this? Why is she doing this, you know? You know, because the bishop is such a nice guy, you know, this is somebody that has, you know, millions of people that depend on him or listen to him, watch him. Um, I really feel, without giving away any spoilers, I think that having her, her point of view validates the, yeah, validates her existence. I didn't want a helpless victim that we're just you know, the blonde girl strangled in the middle of the night. And, yeah. you know, I didn't want that. I wanted someone that had a voice and that had, like I said, that had agency. And you can actually see, oh, my God, you know. And again, she was also a very nice trick for the gaslighting of the reader, you know, because yes. then you're not quite sure, you know, is she there, is she not there? Where is she, who is she talking to, you know? And it was a also a reality check for the reader because, you know, I've, I've gotten some feedback and people said, but who is that person speaking? I'm like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, you know it would, because they're, they're, if, you, if you carefully read those short interludes, there are lots of clues in there yep. that can tell you uh, who well, is at, who. At first, yeah, go on. at first, you're not sure who she's speaking to. You know who who is she addressing, um, and then it, and then it's it begins to become clear. Exactly, and if you remember the first the 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 book is divided into three parts, right? And it looks it looks at it looks at the laws of gas, uh, um, and then it combines it with you know what the Bible says about light, you know, and by the third part of the book you start getting a very strong impression of who she actually is talking to you know uh, because as soon as you figure it out you're like oh and it's almost and this is a no-no i try to tell my fellow writers never ever to do this especially when i'm tutoring uh don't put your reader in a situation whereby you want them to go back and say did i miss something but actually, in this particular case, you might want to go back, <laughs> you know, because there are not a lot of those interludes. You might want to go back and say, oh, this one is to that person, and this one is to this person, and this one is to yeah. that person. And that is something that I deliberately left open for the reader to feel that sense of, I know something Philip doesn't. Yes. Yes, that sense of discovery. Um yeah, no, it's it's, it's yeah. really well done. Um, so another thing that makes it very personal, um, a very personal story to Philip is, of course, uh, his sister, uh, Kenny, who um, is uh, not, you know, she's a member of the congregation of this church. Uh, and so she she provides an interesting counterpoint to Philip. You know, there, there are any number of interesting dialogues, really. You know, Philip talking to his sister, Philip talking to his wife, 
you know, it's almost like a <laughs> so Socratic dialogue uh, going on. Would I, you agree? I, I do. Well, I don't know about Socratic. I, I don't know how to, you know, Patrick, you've read more books than I have and you're, you're more, you're smarter about these things. I was just telling a story about somebody <laughs> that had a sister, you know, yeah. um, I'm, I'm looking at my relationship with my sister, for instance. I'm looking at my relationship with my wife, for instance. You know, how would I approach it? Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do anything big, but just present human beings as being human. Yeah. Um, in this particular case, with the sister, um, the sister goes to the church. Uh, I needed, I needed to pull him into the case, and so she, at first she started out as a pawn, you know, uh, literally right. to pull him into the case because that's one of the things that we always have to ask ourselves when we are writing um about an when we're when our protagonist is an independent detective who does not have the what can I say the rights to investigate a case doesn't have right. the mandate so you first of all have to sort out how does he get the mandate you know and in this particular case he got the mandate through his sister right. you know and then she was also a tool, to my mind, that I used to honor people of true faith, people of, of um, yeah, true faith. You know, people who, 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 and I think I've gotten this a lot from my friends, um, some readers that are, what you can say. I don't want to use the word genuine Christian, that's judgmental, but are true believers in a sense. And I, I would expect sometimes that the kind of feedback I would get would be, oh, wow, how, why would you say this about the church? Why would you say this about organized religion or whatever? But what I've constantly gotten is this is a story that needs to be told, and we like the way you've respected people of genuine faith, people that truly were gaslit, you know. Um, I'm, I'm very, 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 I'm very happy about that. Of all the feedback that I've gotten, I think that's the feedback that always lifts me up, you know, and, and inspires me. This idea that through someone like Philip's sister, you're able to show that there are people that have genuine faith and have good intentions um, and are willing to fix things if they see that something has gone wrong and not just go blindly with the group think. I right. think that that's that yeah. But in terms of his relationship or her relationship with Philip, it's it's interesting because I had a lot of fun writing them because you know, just put, pitching them against each other in terms of ideology. Um, and those are conversations that have also happened in real life, we you know, when you're talking with other other people of the same faith and you're like, why do you think that this is right? You know, what what, what gave you this? You know, where did this bias come from? You know, in the case of um, of um, Kenny, who is also a twin, like uh, like her brother, um, she is an accomplished accountant and auditor. You know, but it seems as if as soon as she gets to the church, she just suspends all disbelief. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she suspends all rational thinking. You know, very successful in her mid forties. And sometimes she sounds as if, you know, 
they had had a lobotomy, so to speak, you know. Um, that and seemed, I sort of that like very real. That seemed very realistic. You know, because we all exactly. know we all know people like that, you know, and and some of us are like that, you know, where there are these huge contradictions and. Uh, and, and I love this part. It's not a spoiler, guys. Uh, this part where she talks about her husband, you know, and and uh, and somebody said uh, um, apparently Philip's wife said something like, um, um, because her husband is an atheist, and yes. she's a. You know, her husband is an atheist, and she's a fundamentalist Christian. And and uh, Philip's wife says something like, "It's like watching Reagan and Hillary Clinton right. married." I remember that part. Yeah, that's that's a great great comparison. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. You know, but it, it, that's just why I had so much fun with that character, and actually how she also changed because her her change as a character is one of the most, um, for me, organic part of it. The more that was revealed in the story, the more she found out, the more she had to change her perception. And sometimes my heart broke totally for her as more became revealed and she had to literally have to change her perception about this world that she has created for herself. Right, right. Now, talking about... Um you know, about cults and about, um, you know, a little while ago you were talking about how, you know, people are drawn to them for different reasons. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people that are kind of sucked into cults go in, you know, maybe, I mean, they're often at a very vulnerable point in their life. Maybe they've just gone through a, you know, some sort of really traumatic event. Uh, and it seems like most people are, are simply searching for a connection, you know, and unfortunately, you know, they're, you know, they're very vulnerable and open to manipulation. I, I think, I think so too. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the thing, the thing about, I don't know about people wanting i think we all want to be witnessed i think we all want to be to 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 be part of something greater than us um and and religion does give us that you know especially right. in cultures um cultures like ours where you know, there's a lot of poverty, for instance. There's a lot of, um, what you can I say, a lack of hope, you know. Um, so to me, I think that it's more than people going to church when, or people going to the mosque or people becoming Buddhists. I like to generalize it like that because what we're talking about is organized religion. We're not talking about, you just use the church as an example. And this is not an indictment on the church. This is an indictment on our on our very, very human ability to edify and elevate individuals above beliefs. You know, um, how do we do it? We do it, you know, we do it 
all the time. I do it, you know. I subscribe to Oprah's channel. I, you know, and she's like, okay, I think you should read this book. And I'm like, it should be a good book because Oprah has good tastes. But guys, seriously, you know, right. <laughs> you know, oh, I subscribe to somebody that is just a, an, a TikTok dancer that tells me, I think you should have pasta for dinner today. I'm like, mm, that sounds like a good idea, you know, kind of thing, you know. So what I'm saying is that there's this, it's very primal, again, this idea that of elevating individuals above principles and morals and values. And that is really what I'm much more concerned about. So when people go to the, what made people go to this, organized spaces, I think it's a need for structure, it's a need for order, it's a need to make sense of the chaos of the real world, and, and to sort of be able to say, this I can predict, on Sunday I go to church. Life is a mess between Monday and Friday, but on Sunday, <laughs> on Sunday, unfailingly you know um they will stand and sit and they will sing the hymns you know for two hours i can predict everything is okay with the world you know and i think we cannot deny people that respite you know sure. this, this, we can't deny people that respect so the reason why people go sort of fades into insignificance as to the reasons why they stay Sure. Yeah. You know, the reason why they stay in the face of scandals, in the face of um of being of, of seeing financial impropriety, for instance, in the face of giving your widow's might and having a pastor that has a private jet, for instance, and you still stay. That is really what is fascinating to me. Because mm. it's okay to go to church because you have a problem and you want a solution, you want a miracle, but in the face of being given proof of impropriety yeah. that negates the very values that brought you there, but you still stayed, I don't have an answer for it. But I know that that's the interest and that's the story. Right. You know, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There are a couple of questions that have come in from our readers who are watching. Um, and one of them is uh, really, yeah. People are watching. People are watching, and they have questions. Um, let's okay. see. Okay, what does your spouse think of your novels? Oh, my spouse. Oh, okay. Okay, Gaslighter is dedicated to her because she really, really uh, gave me a lot of space to write that book. It was a very difficult book to write. Um, and she was the first person that read the full manuscript. And I remember that she walked downstairs from the bedroom. You can see there's a little, you know, that goes up there. She walked downstairs from the bedroom and she had tears in her eyes. and was like, oh, what a beautiful ending. What a beautiful ending. You know, and I felt really, really accomplished because there is nothing worse than writing a story, 90,000 words plus, that leaves the audience, might be interesting, might be fascinating, but that leaves the reader the way you left them, you know. But I was very, very, very moved by the fact that she felt it so deeply, especially this, the family story part of it. 
you know, right. the family story part of it. She really, really related with it much. And she gave me a lot of advice. So my, my spouse, I don't know whether she has much choice, but um, she loves my books and she's my biggest champion. <laughs> That's great. Um, here's a question about uh, where, where did you study creative writing? And, um, and were there any mentor figures that really helped you along the way? Okay, I think the first one is that I, I, like I said, I've always written, you know, I, I do a lot of courses. Um, my, my friends joke that I'm a perennial student, you know, I, I'm constantly going to school, you know, you don't want to see all the schools, short courses, long courses, you know, like that. <laughs> you know I love school. I really, really love school. But um, <clears throat> for creative writing, I went to University of East Anglia. And I did my master's in crime writing. And my first book was my thesis. Um, and Gaslight is my PhD thesis. Oh, okay. So we don't know what the third one will be, but I'm desperately looking for a course to help me through that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, then this, the second question was mentors, figures. I, I don't believe in one mentor. You know, people come to your life and, you know, they just say one word, you know. Um, I think I, I, I wrote the novel Lightseekers because of a dead writer, Toni Morrison. And I always say, you know, she, I just saw that quote and it was in my son's school. We went for a parents teachers meeting and I saw it in the, in the cafeteria, a big sign that says, um, if there's a book that you want to read, but has not yet been written, then you must write it. Toni Morrison. Mm. And I was like, wow, paraphrase, by the way. Uh, wow, you know, it's true. And, and, and I know that in my heart, I was looking for a book like Lightseekers on the shelves. You know, I was looking for African authors like myself next to a David Baldashi, next to a Stephen King, next to, a, you know, Dan Wieslow, you know, uh, next to my favorite authors, you know, and I was tired of seeing <clears throat> almost all our stories relegated to African writing. What does that mean? You know, <laughs> what does it mean, African writing? You know, why is there no American writing? Why is there no American sci-fi? You know, kind of thing, you know. Um, you know, would it surprise people to find out that Margaret Atwood is Canadian? You know, <laughs> for instance, is there is there Canadian writing? You know, kind of thing. So yeah. those those questions used to go through my mind. Maybe because I'm in advertising, um, and, and marketing and branding is my world. So I really wanted to do something um, that I felt could break through the clutter, but is still authentic to my world and my lived experience as an African man. Um, so, yeah, the stories I tell the, the, and the courses that I've been through and the places that I've, the experience that I've had, I've met different people that have mentored me and guided me and given me one line of advice, held my hands. Um, I was very privileged some, some months ago to meet Lee Child, you know, and I was just in the middle of, of signing a new contract and I was saying, Oh yeah, but the money, the advance. And he just looked at me and said, you know, he's a very tall guy. He just looked yeah. at me and said, Femi, Femi. I said, sir, that go where the love is. Go where the love is. You know, and I thought that was just, 
brilliant advice, you know, brilliant. And in that moment, he was my mentor. In that right. brief moment when we were standing there, he was my mentor. You know, I've, I've been mentored by my kids, you know, teaching me how right. to be a parent, you know, because that's what kids do. They teach you how to be a parent. So the idea of having one mentor has never appealed to me, but mm. to actually be in a situation whereby you're open to the feedback and the experiences, shared experiences that other people have, you know, for you um, is, is invaluable for me, you know. Uh, and, and, and last point is that I always have <clears throat> what I call my group of first readers club. I call them <clears throat> my first readers club where I have this group of eight to 10 readers that are my friends that are all over the world. Uh, some lawyers, some writers, some would not pick up a book to save their life. They're only reading it because it's me and the thing. And I create a WhatsApp group and I would share excerpts from my stories with them and they would give me feedback. And that has been very invaluable. So if you go to the acknowledgement parts of my books, you always see my first readers group, you know, they are always there. Some I've never met, by the way. You know, the most, the most, the most impactful person to my writing in the past, especially for Gaslight, is, is an American lady that lives in Boston that we met on a creative writing course. And I have never, and I've never seen her. We've never met really? physically, That's but we've, we've never met. But we practically talk every week. You know, she's like my pen pal. <laughs> so you've never you've never had a Zoom meeting with her or anything? No. Nope. Nope. That's, that's wonderful. Nope. She's she's in her 70s. She's also a writer. And I call her Auntie A. You know, she anti accountability, you know, because she holds us accountable, kind of thing. And and she's just amazing. So they come from anywhere. As the more open you are to this experiences the more the more the universe brings the people that you need that's, that's you right know, to, to push through to pull through uh, and, and you've got to honor those people because those are mentors those are angels mm -hmm. you know yeah and i don't know about you but you know books can be yeah. mentors you know you come across the right book at the right time it can change your life you know, absolutely absolutely I think for me, but the book that did that for me was John Ivan's The Son of the Circus. I think it's one of his least celebrated works and it's one of my favorite books of all time. And I remember reading this book and I, I, it was the foreword that got me. He says he's writing a, a story about India and he has only been to India once. <laughs> and I was just coming from this school of thought to say, write what you know. I'm like... There's, there's a contradiction here, you know? So I picked up this book and I read it and it was one of the wittiest and most hilarious and most wise books that I've ever read. And it told me that the world of fiction is so robust and so flexible and so anti-fragile that you just have to embrace it. And that book mentored me because it allowed me to see the, the power of the human imagination, the power of the human imagination to create experiences for people to journey through 
and he wrote it from from one visit to India, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, yes, you're very right. You know, books mentor. You know, another book that did that for me was also um, uh, William Styron's Sophie's Choice. You know, one of my favorite, all-time favorite books, you know. Um, I also loved A Little Life by Anya Yana. I cannot pronounce that name. Um, a Little is that, Life is also one of those books. Hmm? Is that a good book? I, 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 I keep seeing it everywhere, but I have not read it yet. The Japanese writer, right? No, it's, um, it's, she's from Hawaii. She's American. Okay. Yeah, A Little Life. I'm it's, thinking of a different book. I might be thinking of a different book. I think it's a different book they're thinking about because um, oh, yeah. A Little Life was shortlisted for the booker and you either hate it or you love it. It was one of my favorite books for almost half a decade since it came out. Um, it was a very traumatic book, but I think it's just so, so, so well written, you know, really, really well written in terms of, again, relationships and, you know, existential questions, you know, mm. um, and, and, and trauma, you know, it, a lot of people call it trauma porn. Uh, it is trauma porn. It's a bit over the top, not a bit, extremely over the top, but it's so well written, you know, it's well written over the top melodrama, you know. And so I don't think there's any, there's any story that required us to books that don't limit our ability to, to experience the world and to see and to to elevate our powers of empathy are good mentorship books. Well, this is kind of a, a good note to end on. I mean, at the beginning, I was struck by something you said at the very beginning of the talk, which was, uh, you know, my writing has made me a better person. And you don't hear people say that very often. And that's uh, what what a great kind of thing to say or to be aware of you know i think so i think it uh, has because if you're genuinely if you're genuinely curious about the world that you're exploring and the experiences that your characters are going through um they speak to you and they give you little warnings you know whisper i would type some things i would type a particular kind of dialogue and i'm like oh you've been guilty of this You've got to go say sorry, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. You know, I would, I would go through that. I, I think I'm a better person. I, I like myself a lot more than, you know, and I think the idea of having a published book that you can go back and read, you know, and see how you grow. I think Gaslight is a much more humane book, um, a lot less ambitious than Lightseekers, but. It's the kind of book that I don't think that I could have written when I was 30 or when I was in my early 40s, you know, um, as simple as one can say the book is. Um, and I think that's what makes the, the art of writing, on that note we can end, uh, the art of being an author, such a lifelong journey of growth because, you know, you never really retire, right? You know, and you get better with age, you know, with the experiences that you have. You know, the books that you write when you're a parent is different from the books that you write when you're a grandparent. And it's different but books that you write, you know, knock on wood when you're a great grandparent, you right. know, or a grand uncle, you know, or a grand, you know, um, auntie. Um, so it's not just about 
I'm just using that as phases of life. But same thing, the books that you write when you're, you know, starting your career and you are very ambitious, you know, when you think about David Baldash's books when he was, you know, a, yeah. law, a lawyer, you know, juggling two jobs. And then he gets when uh, now he's in a place where uh, he knows he's an author and he's writing and he's telling a story. It's very different, you know. There's, there's, there's even sometimes you can even sense for people like us that came to the game late, you can even sense our desperation, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then when and then when you get better at it, in a sense, and when you're more sure of yourself that you know you have that publishing deal. It, the stories take a different tone, you know, a bit more confidence comes into it and a bit more wisdom and self-introspection comes into it. And you're allowed to be, and I'm enjoying that. I really am enjoying that. Can you tell us anything about your third book? <laughs> yeah, my third book is started, started doing the research. Um, Philip Taiwo is going to be investigating a plane crash in the skies of Nigeria. Um, and he will have to deal with the fact that he might not be going back to the U.S. as early as he thought. So, um, it's, so he's looking at the aviation industry. Uh, I'm trying to just try and look at the systems and the institutions around aviation in Africa, um, specifically to specifically Nigeria in this case. And um, yeah, so that's what it is. It's called it's called i don't know i've not i don't have my title approved yet but i like it so far the first one i had was not working but now i like it it's called dark four in my head <laughs> so it's looking at a plane crash and, and the safety issues of flying in nigeria and all the systemic issues that go into the aviation industry in nigeria sounds fascinating yeah thank you thank well, you Femi, it's been a real treat to talk with you. Thanks so much. I know we've run a little bit late, folks, but um, here's the brand new book called Gaslight. Uh, we have copies here at the Poison Pen. And uh, one of these days, it would be wonderful to get you out here in person. I would love that. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. That would be fun. Do you get over to the States very often? Uh, my, my son goes to UC Denver. Well, that's pretty darn uh, close. That's not far from I see, us. I think not too far. So I'm hoping that I'll I'll go see him sometime this year. So I will definitely get in touch. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. That but I I do come to the states once in a while. But I go to the UK a lot more because it's closer. Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, anyway, Femi, congratulations on the publication of the book. Wonderful to talk to you. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And thank uh, you. We'll and sorry for the internet connection. No problem. Take care. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.